0: On Easter Sunday, two Sundays ago, I started talking about this path that Paul was walking on the way to Jerusalem. And I was mirroring for you how this path was not, uh, Paul was not the first person who traveled down this path, that this was a path that Jesus had traveled down. I was trying to make some illustrations and connections. And so what I wanna do for you today is I wanna build on that idea a little bit by giving you, a chart that kind of compares some very interesting things for you. What I want to show you here in just a second is a comparison of the path that Jesus walked and the experience he had and the path that Paul walked and the experience he had and it's the reason why I'm doing this is because it echoes back to the illustration that I shared on Easter about this path that Jesus walked, Paul walked and that we are also called to walk. And the reason why I wanna show you this is because there's just some striking similarities that I'd like you to look at. Now, before I show you this, I'm gonna preempt this with an apology. I really, really did my best to figure out a way to put all this information on one slide without it being so small that most of your eyes couldn't see it. And I don't know that I've accomplished that. So I'm gonna put this up on the screen and most of you are gonna go, that looks like nothing. Did you draw a bunch of lines on a slide? Because it looks like blurry lines. I am gonna post this on Slack afterwards. If you're not on Slack and you want it, shoot me a message and I'll make sure that you get it. But I think this is really powerful. I stumbled across this in a commentary I was reading this week by a guy named David Garland. Um, It's on page 244 uh, of uh, the Teach the Text commentary series on um, the book of Acts. It's a great commentary series. I highly encourage you to check it out. But um, if you'll take a look at this, what we're looking at here in this column, come on, baby, don't fail me now. There we go. (laughs) What we're looking at here is the uh, trials of Jesus, okay? And over here, we're looking at the trials of Paul. I'm going to walk you through this in case can't see as clearly as I can standing here, but we're looking at Jesus's trial. In Luke 9, 51, Jesus makes a passion journey to Jerusalem. And in Acts 19, 21a, and then he's referencing it again in 2022, Paul makes a passion journey to Jerusalem. Same journey. In Luke 22, 54, a mob seizes Jesus, and in Acts 21, 30, a mob seizes Paul. There were four hearings before the authorities, before Jesus. The Sanhedrin, Luke 22, 61 through 71. Pilate, Luke 23, one through five. Herod Antipas, Luke 23, six through 12. And Pilate, Luke Luke 23, 13 through 25. And there were also four hearings for Paul. Acts 22, Sanhedrin. Felix, Acts 24. Festus, Acts 25. Herod Agrippa II, Acts 25. And before these four kind of lay out, embedded in these, we see that Jesus is struck and he does not respond in Luke twenty-two sixty-three. 63, but Paul is struck and he does respond. We'll cover that today. There were three declarations of innocence that Jesus made Luke 23, 4, 14, and 22. And there were three declarations of innocence that Paul made in Luke 23, 29, 25, 25, and 26, 31. And there was a crowd that shouted away with this man, in Luke 23 and there was a crowd that shouted away with this man in Acts 21. I wanted you to see this because both of these books were written by the same guy. Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts. This author is doing something very specific. He's drawing connections for the audience to understand. He wants us, the audience, to understand that this path that Paul walked wasn't the first time a human being walked this path and it won't be the last time that a human being walks this path. This path was walked by Paul, this path was also walked by us. Now what I mean by that is, I'm gonna start drawing in some imagery here about this path that Jesus walked to Jerusalem and Paul walked to Jerusalem. I'm not asking anyone in here to walk to Jerusalem what I'm saying is that what the author is trying to get us to understand is that the actual walk of these two men is now mirrored in the walk that we live as Christians on our daily lives. The, the idea that these guys would walk to Jerusalem is mirrored in your life. Your walk to Jerusalem is you moving closer and closer to Jesus until one day when your life will expire and you will meet him face to face. That's your path to Jerusalem. And this path is filled with all kinds of things. It's filled with suffering, it's filled with tribulations, it's filled with mobs, it's filled with people who will say away with you, it's filled with trials. Now are you actually gonna be caught up in a mob? Probably not, but I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out in the days that we live. Will you be thrown into prison for what you believe? Probably not, but I wouldn't rule it out in the days that we live. If you would have asked most of us in this room if the world would, have, if, if the world would look like it does today 20 years ago, most of, us, most of us would have said no, there's no way that the world would look the way it does today. So just fast forward 20 years and let your mind consider what the world might possibly look like. With regards to the freedom for you to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus and he is the only way to go to heaven. Could you suffer prosecution for that kind of statement? It's possible. And that's the reason why I feel so burdened in order to prepare the people for what might be coming. Because if nothing like this comes our way, then praise God. But if this does come our way and we're not ready then there is nothing but another wave of compromise about to hit the church. So, when you look at this path, you see a path of putting sin to death and how that often angers and creates conflict in society. Because how dare you tell me that this type of lifestyle is sin when this is what makes me most happy. Walking that path automatically results in conflict in society because the culture that Jesus is establishing in his kingdom is the complete opposite of the culture that this world is establishing with their kingdom. And so walking this path means suffering some level of persecution trials and at the very least disagreeing with your neighbor to the point where you don't get invited to the office party. Walking this path also looks like you living with faith and angering the people around you because it creates conviction inside of them that they don't don't like. When someone comes along and says, hey, why don't you just kind of lie about this one thing so we can get this business deal done. I, I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? Don't you know that our lives are at stake because of this mistake I made? And unless you do this one thing, then we're all gonna be called on the carpet on this. Can't you just bend your little Christian rules a little bit? Why does this have to be the hill that you die on? Because we're either people who live by a covenant or we're not. This path that we're walking requires an affirming of God's authority over all other authority. This path requires you to say, I will not yield to human exaltation because God is exalted above humanity. And that is what I wanna wrestle with and look at today in Acts 22 and 23, that last idea and this is the idea that valuing god's revealed truth over institutional wisdom or cultural thought is the path of the christian now that listen this is not going to be easy and the reason why is because institutions and cultural thought they are very loud And they are very persuasive. And they have weapons in their arsenal that make it seem like you will suffer greatly in this life. But I'm telling you that if you are a Christian and if you are following Jesus, you cannot live with any other authority higher than God's authority. Does this mean that culture has nothing to say about particular issues? No, it does. As long as what it has to say doesn't contradict the ultimate authority of God and what he has revealed in his word. So if, we, if we're talking about science, science is, uh, I love just like the broad, like science is this guy that you can go meet at a party. Science has done wonderful things. The advancement of modern medicine. You know, if, if you get cancer, like I, I, I would encourage you go see a doctor, like they know what they're doing. But ultimately, if science starts making bold declara- declarations that supersede God's authority, then that's where we as a Christian have to draw the line, okay? There has to be a line in the values that we hold that supersede and rise above any new thing in science or culture that has just been discovered or, or has just been released by some thought leader or someone with a ton of degrees who says, no, this is the way we should start thinking about this thing because the science says this or we've done studies that say this and you're looking at this saying, yeah, but this says this. You will come to a place, if you're following Jesus, where you have to make a decision about what authority is great, the greatest. And that's what I want to look at today, because Paul confronts two groups who see no value in, in God having the ultimate authority in any situation. They only respect their personal institutions and their religious structures. So are, are you ready to get into it? Mm, Let's get into it. This is going to be fun. Acts 22. This is one of those sermons that somebody's going to, they're going to soundbite and they're going to start blasting me about. I just know it. Okay. So Acts 22, 23. It says, as they were shouting, so Paul is now in this crowd, he is asked to share his testimony, is just share his testimony about who he was and what he's been doing for the last 10 years or so on the mission field, preaching Jesus. He's been called to the Gentiles, and he tells them he was called to the Gentiles, and they start freaking out, throwing dust up in the air, and they're, they're going nuts. Verse 23, and they were shouting, and they were throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. And the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. What's a, what's a tribune? A tribune is a person in the Roman structure. He is a person who essentially is over about a thousand Roman soldiers. So the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that, ye, that he should be examined by flogging. Oh, wow. What a way to be examined right? Could you imagine if our court system worked like that? We're going to cross-examine you with this whip. So they're going to ask him questions and examine him while they're flogging him to find out why everyone was shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by him, "Hey, uh, hey guy, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Uh-oh, because there's a Roman law that you can't do that. They're about to break their own laws because Roman, soldier, Roman citizens have rights. The centurion heard this, verse 26, he went to the tribune and said to him, hey, what, what are you about to do? For this man's a Roman citizen. And the tribune came and said to him, tell me, um, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes. And the tribune answered, Uh, Well, I I bought this citizenship for a large sum, implying this homely-looking, bruised-up man in front of me. How is it that you have a Roman citizenship when I know how much it cost me? There's no way you have one. It, It was expensive. And Paul replied, I'm a citizen by birth. I was born into it, which probably means that his father bought his citizenship which means that Paul being born into it was born with it so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately and the tribune was also afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him okay let's let's pause right there because what has happened so far is that Paul has publicly in front of the romans and in front of the jews declared that he is a speaker of truth He is essentially a prophet. He is a man speaking on behalf of God. He is sharing the gospel and the gospel message is you need to repent and be baptized. Did anyone listen to him? No, no one listened to him. They beat him instead. But there was something that they did listen to. It's not you guys are going to perish God is going to come back in judgment, and he's going to bring judgment on the whole earth. And if you don't want to go to hell and suffer eternity in torment, then just repent and turn to God. That's not what they listened to. What did they listen to? Oh, you're a Roman citizen? Well, stop the presses. Stop everything. Everything immediately ceases because, oh, this guy's a Roman citizen. No, God is going to rain fire on the earth. He's going to return and he's going to judge the nations for their wickedness. And he's going to purge the heavens and the earth and he's going to give a new heavens and a new earth. Repent now. Oh, no, no. He's a Roman citizen. Oh, well, we better do something about that. What we're witnessing here is that the Roman culture valued their own authority, their own human institutions, their own human exaltation over God's authority over his own creation. Now what's crazy about this is that this was 2,000 years ago but the world hasn't changed. The invitation from the world is still the same. Trust what humanity says about an issue, not God. Post-enlightenment, we have discovered a way to advance technology and science and human reason so that we can solve the world's problems and we don't need this crutch of religion. We don't need this pretend imaginary God in the sky helping us solve the world's problems. We can create institutions that will address these issues and they can fix everything. The problem is that These institutions that get created always do the same thing, which is create more problems. Trust the human institution and all of our advancements, not God. Trust trust our way about, trust our way of thinking about sexuality and race and history. I know that you were told this, but it's only because history was written by the winners and so it's not true. I know you were told this about gender and sexuality, but but science has gotten it wrong. Isn't that fascinating? How some things science gets always right, but sometimes science gets wrong. We're wrestling in a time now where human exaltation is Building a Tower of Babel higher and higher and higher. And the invitation is stretching wider and wider and wider. All nations come to us and we will tell you how to think on anything. And you don't even have to leave the comfort of your own room, just go on YouTube and you'll find somebody who's an expert on anything that you want to know about because they have a YouTube channel and they'll tell you anything that you wanna know. (laughs) And here's the issue, there was a time when if you were on that television, it's because you passed a long line of censors and people listening to your script and be like, oh, we shouldn't say this. Or we, There's some stewardship to the way that we do this. We probably shouldn't, we shouldn't frame this out this way. We should restructure it. Now, any goof with internet access and a webcam can spread any amount of information they want. And because we grew up in a culture believing that, well, if this guy's on TV, he's some expert, we start assuming that because this person is on screen, they are now an expert. And they're in our phones, and they're on our watches. We can't look anywhere without someone in culture telling us how we're supposed to think on anything. There's no shortage of how you, and here's the invitation, come and think on a thing and we will make sure that you have an opinion on everything. No time in the history of the world has any human being been expected to have an opinion on everything that happens in the world. There was a time in the world where it was okay when someone said, what do you think about this? I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. No, not anymore, not if you have an Instagram account. Now, if you don't have an opinion on things, you better pretend like you have an opinion on things and you better make sure that that opinion lines with what the culture is saying is the predominant voice on the issue or you will suffer some persecution. And I'm saying that the invitation being still the same in the time that we live from the world is trust us, trust us, trust us. We have respect for our own institutions and the things that we build. This is not the path of the Christian because the path of the Christian is filtering every single thing in this world through one lens. I am looking at the world through the lens of God's revealed word. I am not looking at God's revealed word through the lens of the world. If I've got a pair of glasses on, the pair of glasses that help me see clearly, that help me understand how I'm supposed to think about things in this world, it comes from this. Look, you're like, man, that's an old book. I don't know if that has much to say about the things that we're dealing with here. Man, you've been hooked. You've been hooked by the enemy. That's an age old lie that there are things that God is holding back. So take a bite. There's things that he hasn't spoken of, that he doesn't want you to know about, that that he didn't foresee happening. We're living in a wild age and many of the things we're dealing with today, they they can't be addressed, they can't be synthesized through here. But that is the opposite of what this message is proclaiming. This message is proclaiming that there is nothing that will take place in the history of humanity that has not already been known, birthed, and planned for in the heart of God. There is nothing that is going to transpire that this word, this, look, this is not just a book, right? This is his revealed word. This is what he says about all things throughout history. This is his story about losing humanity because of our unrighteousness and saying, I'm going to triumph over that by sending my son to die for this creation. That's what this story is about. And the invitation for anyone who hears the story is come close to him and accept what he says about things because guess what? He made all of it. Imagine if you have spent your life building your little home and you've got your kids and you've got your wife and you've got your rules in your home and everything and you invite me over as a guest for dinner and I come in and the first thing I do is I start telling you everything that you're doing wrong in your house and how you need to change the rules in your house and how if you want different, better kids, you need to be doing this instead of this. And the entire dinner is just me telling you all the things that you're doing wrong and how you need to change your house rules. Would that be offensive to you? Or would you be like, man, I'm glad this guy came for dinner. (laughs) Imagine how God feels when his own creation starts creating human institutions that at their core say, you've got it wrong, let's trust what we built. But it doesn't, here's the, here's, the, here's the rough part, it doesn't stop with, with just civilization and, and human uh, institutions. This garbage starts bleeding into the church. And we take this human institution structure and elevating mankind and we just inject it like venom right into the life of God's community and that's what we see and we get into verse t- uh, 30. So go to 22 verse 30. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the councils to meet. So this is the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the tribune organizing all the Jewish councils to come together, to come to a resolution on what's going on with Paul. And they brought Paul down and he set, he set him before them. So Paul is now sitting before the whole council. This is probably about 70 uh, Jewish high council members. The high priest is there. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is gonna strike you, you whitewashed wall. Mmm, get him, get him. <laughs> I read some commentaries this week and they were like Paul lost it. He sinned there. Cuz that's not what Jesus did. I don't know, I beg to differ. I kind of like it. Paul's getting <laughs> Paul's getting mouthy and I'm here for it. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you ordered me to be struck? And those who stood by him say, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, "Uh, well I didn't know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now pause right there because there is so much Jewish stuff going on that's real good that we're gonna miss if we don't dissect this for a second. Man, so here, follow me. So Paul, at the, the request of this tribune leader, it stands before these uh, Sanhedrin and uh, these Pharisees. It's two different, uh, the, the entire Sanhedrin. And he's standing before these uh, Sadducees and these Pharisees. Uh, two different, uh, poli- you can imagine them as like political groups on the same council, right? It's like uh, House of Representatives and it's split right down the middle. You've got like uh, your Pharisees over here, you got your Sadducees over here. And both of them believe fundamentally different about some things, and Paul's gonna bring that up in a second. But he's standing there before them and he addresses, addresses them. He says, listen, listen brothers, 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 I, I'm, I am clear in my conscience before God. So he starts off by saying, like, I'm one of you. Like I'm a Jew among Jews. I, was tr- I know, like, like, Simeon, I know you. We used to hang out, like we went to school together. I know you guys. But they're so offended at Paul high priest Ananias is like, strike that man on the face for saying something so filthy. And Paul gets beat after he had just got beat by this large crowd, and he responds with a quote from Ezekiel 13, 10 through 14. He calls them, he calls him a whitewashed wall. Now, what is that? What is a whitewashed wall? Well, the prophecy in Ezekiel 13 goes like this. At the time, the prophets, in Israel, were false prophets. And the king is doing things like, uh, uh, prophets, well, you know, we got like, uh, the, the nations are coming up against us. Give me a word. Give me a word. What does God say about this? And the prophets, prophets, are like, uh, uh, I don't actually spend a whole lot of time with God. I don't actually have a word. So, uh, what's, uh, what's, what does God think about us? people? He loves his people. Here's the word. You're going to be fine. It's peace. I know you hear in the news that they're coming for us. Ignore it. God's going to save us. Peace, peace, peace. And Ezekiel says, the Lord told me to tell you that all of you false prophets are like whitewashed walls because you keep saying peace, peace in a time where there is no peace. This judgment that's coming is at the hands of the Lord and he's not going to save his people from it because he's the one pushing the army towards Jerusalem. And he calls them a whitewashed walls because at that time, when you would create a wall, one of the things that you would do to make it look stronger than it actually was, was to paint it bright white. Because in the sun, it's so reflective and so bright, you can't actually see the imperfections in the wall because it's so bright. And Ezekiel's saying, you false prophets, you're like whitewashed walls. You're spending all your time trying to hide the imperfections rather than really dealing with them. And Paul, he is a master of the Old Testament. He knew exactly what he was saying. He didn't, this wasn't an idiom. He wasn't just like, man, you whitewashed wall because he heard some guy on the street saying it. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was calling these high, the high priest and the entire council. He was making connection that they would have gotten in their minds that you are no different than the false prophets back in the days of Ezekiel who said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I am here proclaiming to you the day of repentance. You need to turn from your sin and you want to smack me in the face from it. And the response is, how dare you hit the high priest, and Paul's response is, well, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest, and it's funny, man, you, you read through some commentaries, and there's some people who are like, well, maybe the high priest wasn't dressed in his robe, and Paul didn't recognize him, or he had been away from Jerusalem so long, maybe he just kind of, maybe he didn't, maybe, maybe because he was beaten, and his eyes were so, and it was, it was dim lighting. No, 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 he knew exactly who this guy was, and the way he responds to me reveals that. He said, well, I didn't know he was the high priest. Yes, you did, What you're saying is that the high priest shouldn't act like that, and since this guy acted like that, I didn't think he was the high priest. That's what he's saying. Now, why do we know that? Because he then quotes Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, 28, and he says, well, I, I know you're not supposed to curse your ruler, but right after that command in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, 28, when you get in Exodus 23, don't curse your ruler. What are some other commands surrounding that, that one command? Here's one. You shall not bear a false report. Don't join hands with wicked men to be a malicious witness. Are you seeing this? Paul, the master of this Old Testament text is saying, well, I didn't realize he was the high priest. I would never do that to the high priest. You're not acting like a high priest. We're supposed to show respect to our rulers, but we're also not supposed to join hands with malicious men to bear a false witness. It's not the only command to not speak against the leaders. Here's another command, guys, how about we don't bear a false report and lie? This trial is about the same thing we talked about earlier with the Romans. Mankind, even in religious institutions, love exalting human thought above God's commands. And what you're about to witness here is that these guys value their own institution their own religious institution, more than a prophet standing in their midst saying, repent and follow Jesus. Let's go to verse six and 23. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Oof. He now hit the nuclear button in this setting, and he set the groups against them because why? Because he knows that this group cares about their own personal human religious institutions and their own convictions more than they care about what he has to say about a matter. I'm here to talk about Jesus, but if you don't want to talk about Jesus, I'm going to reveal your heart. (laughs) Look what he does, verse 7. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. Why? Because the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, there are no angels, there's no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. And great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply and said, Well, uh, brothers, we find nothing wrong with this man. (laughs) What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Who are we to judge? When the dissension became violent, the tribune Lost his mind. After, he was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them, and force them to bring him back into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said to him, "Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome." Now let's pause there. We're going we're to come back to eleven just a second, but I want to look at this this ridiculous trial. These men, they had more allegiance to their own human institutions because the moment the, the Pharisees found out that Paul was a Pharisee, they valued his political perspective over the message he's trying to preach. Oh, you're one of us? Well, I don't know if we can actually try him, everybody. What, what is happening here? It's because this religious institution has elevated their own personal things against God's word. And they start switching sides because of this tradition. Now I said we covered human exaltation in the world earlier. This is a sign of human exaltation in religion. This is what it looks like when churches sell out the word of God and become more interested in their tradition or their own personal perspective and they start waving a flag that doesn't have Jesus on it. But they like calling themselves Christians this has got two sides to this coin. and What I mean by that is when humans exalt themselves in the form of religion, it comes out in community institutions being elevated above God and it comes out in individual desires within the religious institutions being exalted above God. That's how both, this is, that's how this is played out. Now, now follow me here. What I'm saying is that when human exaltation gets injected into religious culture. The first way it manifests itself is that the community is the identity. Not that the community was forged by God and God is their identity. No, the community is their identity. And you see this in cults. But you also see this in denominations. I'm looking at you, Episcopal Church that would elevate a religious denomination above God's command and start compromising on issues of sexuality. You hear me? This is what this looks like. When you say, I don't care what God says about a thing. Our institution thinks we can think better about this thing, so we're going to go with what we think about it rather than what God says about it. So you get this reflection that the community is now elevated above God's command, but also within the community, individuality starts getting elevated above God's commands and you see this in reflection of humanism interjecting into the church. And all of a sudden, what's most important is what makes you feel the best. Well, guess what doesn't make you feel the best? The teaching of God's word. So let's stop doing that. Let's talk about something else. How about the new Doctor Strange movie? I could preach a sermon about that. I'm sure there's a new Pixar movie coming out, I could preach about that. There's some new interesting book that was written by some psychologist that I'm sure has some interesting things to say about the way that we should live our lives. And this whole thing just gets turned into a TED talk. And it's these short little 23 minute bites and there's no punch to it, there's no conviction to it, and there's no call to repentance or change because it's all about how nice you are and how you were born fine and there's no need to repent of anything. That's the first way it gets elevated. The second way it gets elevated is in a TV church culture. I'm not gonna go and submit myself to the community of the believers Because what is more important than submitting myself to transformation in the context of community is my comfort and my couch is so comfortable. (laughs) Who are you to tell me I can't hear God's word while I'm also wrapped in my little blanket on my comfortable couch? And if I start hearing something that he's saying I don't like, I'll just change the channel and listen to a different message. We're witnessing this in the midst of this trial. But we have to remember that the Christian path is not this, the Christian path is about treasuring Jesus above individuality and institutionalized religion. Now the pinnacle of this is what we're about to read towards the end of 23. The pinnacle of human exaltation is getting to the point where you remove those among you who are holding God's standards above the values of the community. What do we do with someone when they just won't get in line? Well, we take them out. We get them out of community. Go to verse 12. This is when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. there were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. Now, what would imagine if your Wednesday started off by finding out that 40 people had made a covenant to no longer eat or drink until you were dead? How would your Wednesday go? Well, it would go terrible unless you were leaning on God's promises where he had previously just said, it doesn't matter what you hear in culture or society or from angry men. I'm telling you, you will make it to Rome. So, oh, so really what we're talking about here is, are you going to trust me or trust what you hear? So they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food or drink until we've killed Paul. Everyone gives each other a high five. Good plan. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down. So here's the plan. Let the tribune know that we're going to determine his case more exactly, but when he comes down, we're going to kill him. We're not actually going to determine his case. We're going to kill him. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush. Whoa, what? Paul's got a sister? He's got a nephew? So you're telling me that God can start orchestrating things outside of what you have control of in this little prison in order to fulfill his word? And that's why you should trust him over human institutions that are promising you safety and security? That's exactly what I'm telling you that we never hear about this kid before and we never hear about him again, but he is the agent that, in, that speeds up this process of Paul being uh, uh, saved and fulfilling God's word of saving him. So he went into the barracks and told Paul and Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, uh, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to tell, to bring this man to you, he has something to say. Now let's just pause about how ridiculous this is. A guy who's over a thousand men is just told, hey, a prisoner asked me for a favor. He wants his nephew to come talk to you. What is the guy's response? Verse 19, the tribute took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? If you can't see God's hand working in this, you're blind. This is ridiculous. This dude doesn't have time to listen to some prisoner's nephew talk about how he's, not, how he's innocent. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but they don't be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush to kill him. They've bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat or drink until they kill him. And now they have, are ready and waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, don't tell anybody of what you informed me. And he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers. Do not let this just be a verse that you read over, okay? I want you to watch how God saves Paul, because here's the deal. God breaks people out of prison with angels. He breaks people out of prison with earthquakes, but he also breaks people out of prison with armies of 200 soldiers at the request of the people who are holding him in jail. So they called the soldiers, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor up in Caesarea. Caesarea is where he, had ju- where he just was. He was at the house of Philip the Evangelist and his daughters who prophesy. He's going back up there to that town. That's also the town where um, uh, 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 Peter witnessed to uh, a Roman centurion and he got saved. Centurion, uh, Caesarea is a Christian town. Caesarea is full of believers. But he wrote this letter, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they accused him, I brought him down to, the, to their council. And I found that he was being accused by questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So we're moving this trial out of town. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And then on the next day, they went on to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with them. And they came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor. And they presented Paul also before him. And on reading that letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now I wanted you to read this section. It seems long and lengthy and possibly unconnected, but I wanted you to see God's faithfulness in this section. Because what we have here, very simply put, is God asking Paul, trust me. Which is the foundation of where I started with this message. The invitation to the world is here is a lot of evidence on why you should trust us. And here is God's word saying, trust me. And the decision Paul had to make on this path that he's walking is the same decision that we have to make on the path that we're walking. Because this world only fears one thing and that is the thing that it creates. It has no respect for God and his ways. It only has respect for its things and what it has created. And that has bled into religious institutions too. And so when Paul says, what am I supposed to do? Am I gonna be thrown in this prison? What does my future hold? And God says, I just need you to trust my word. I'm going to get you to Rome. That's the only thing Paul needed. All Paul needed was to listen to God. So I started our message today with this premise, that valuing God's revealed truth over institution, institutional wisdom and cultural thought is the path that every Christian should walk. I started with that premise and I feel like I argued it as hard as I could that God's word supersedes everything that we see here in society and anything that that this world has to offer. But I wanna address just briefly why this is so important. Why am I hammering the truth that God's word supersedes anything this world has to offer? That seems like a no-brainer. That seems like a duh. except for the fact that most of us are more, we are more familiar with what happens in the 24-hour news cycle than we are with what happens in God's word. That's the truth. We are more familiar with what's happening in Ukraine than we know what happened in the book of Ezekiel. We are more interested in the things that affect our pocketbook than why God established a covenant with a group of slaves from Egypt. And so while we say, of course, God's word supersedes anything that this earth has to offer, there comes a point at which what the world has to offer is very tempting and it seems right This person's experience seems valid. There's only one problem. That it contradicts what God has said about the human experience. And this is the issue of our day. Will you trust what God has said about his creation, or will you constantly run to culture, to the news, to politics, to thought leaders, to social media, to your uncle, to your parents, to your own ability to reason and structure and come to a logical conclusion on something? Will you trust in the exaltation of human thought and our ability to solve problems in our times with our solutions, or will you trust that the only person who really knows how to think about a thing is God, and he's already told us how to think about a thing? That's the tension. And here's why it's a problem. Because as a church, we can create all the systems and structures we could possibly think of in order to equip you with this word. I've got plans in my mind when we start our next message series, the Psalms of Ascent, to start as a culture within our church, valuing scripture to a point where we as a church are gonna start memorizing scripture weekly. You're like, that sounds like some youth group stuff. That's not what big church does. Your honor, I rest my case. (laughs) You're like, well, I'm not good at memorizing stuff. I know, it's because you never tried but we're all going to do it together because there's value in knowing God's word. And we're going to get to a place as a church where you're going to know by memory the entire book of James. We'll get there. We will get there. But, but, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take years. It's going to take you getting to a place where you say, I treasure him and his word over anything that this world has to offer. That's just one component of it. I have a vision next year to start creating um, a series of classes and training and, and, and training classes that will some be in person, but a lot of them will live online. And you can, there'll be, let's just say, 15 classes uh, on understanding the, the, the components of how the Old Testament foreshadows the New Testament. You watch it whenever you want. Hit pause, let it roll. We'll put it on podcast. You can listen to it. You can watch it. There'll be charts. There'll be maps. (laughs) Look, the church has done a horrible job equipping the saints for the work of the ministry because we've been too busy trying to entertain the saints until Jesus shows up. And that has created a pretty horrible world for us to live in. We don't know the word and that's why when the world offers us something that looks appealing, we bite for it because we don't know the opposite. We don't know what's true. But here's the problem. We can create these structures. We can create memory verse things. And we, we can create classes. And we can make small groups even more fruitful and, and more abundant times of worship and teaching of God's word. And we can do all of those things. But it won't do anything any good until you get to the place in your heart where you say, I treasure his word over this world. Because you will hit a point in this process of walking the path of a Christian where something in this world will rise up inside of you and you say, well, this is the way I was born or this is the way I was taught to think about a thing. All right, well, you have a decision to make. You either continue living the way you were born or thinking the way you were taught, or you submit yourself to what he says about this thing and you let that thing die and you walk this path of death to experience a joyful resurrection. And I'm telling you, it is one of the most uncomfortable, unfruitful things you can imagine. Because if you don't first make that decision, I trust you over everything. Anything this world has to offer, the moment the world offers something appetizing, you will compromise every single time. Let's pray.